0: God and Satan speak to each other about this man named Job. Starting verse 1, the Word of God says, Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered, my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me uh, against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh and he will Curse you to your face. The Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand only, spare his life. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. And then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. May God bless the reading of his inspired and authoritative words. job of nursing him back to health. In fact, he was so good that we ended up even thinking that we are going to put him in skilled care facility as a, as a step down so that he could eventually make his way home. Yet while he was in that process of stepping down, he had a setback, one that put him back in intensive care unit, and he finally passed away in hospice after putting up quite a fight, for he is a faulkner. We are fighters by nature. I miss that. I still miss it. two and a half years later. I miss our weekly phone calls. I miss talking about the little things of life, our stories, his story, even talking about politics. I wanna ask you guys a question. I want a serious question about these two deaths that have happened in my life. What's the difference between the death of my father the death of my dog? Or rather, should there be a difference? The reason I ask this is that for many centuries in our culture, we have said that there absolutely is a difference between the death of the dog and the death of a close loved one in the family. But now, in our culture, more than ever, there are scholars civil authorities, and sadly enough, even doctors, who are effectively saying, actually, there isn't a whole lot of difference. Maybe no difference. These growing voices are promoting in our time what we would call euthanasia. Now, euthanasia is a Greek word, or is derived from the Greek, which means good death. Good death. By good death, euthanasia advocates mean the deliberate killing of people suffering from various debilitating diseases, and this is the key, in the name of mercy. And we had to ask the question in our time, what are we to do about death as Christians, and euthanasia in particular as, as believers and followers of Jesus? And what does the Word of God say, and our Lord Jesus say, about death itself? Well, once again, we're going to look at this ethical problem in our time and look at it from, from God's Word and the Gospel's point of view in a framework of three things. Just following what we did last week, we're going to look at the question of the human as Christians with truth, with grace, and with love. With truth, with grace, and with love. And our working text comes from Job chapter 2 this morning. Uh, Where we see an evidence of truth, grace, and love coming out in so many ways in a real-life circumstance. Job 1 tells us that Job was a righteous man, was an upright man, and that as a historic person, he was one who feared God and turned away from evil. He was what we would call in our time a godly man. God showed much pleasure in him. In fact, in all this text of Job 1 and 2, God keeps saying to Satan, the adversary, Have you uh, considered my servant Job and how upright he is? Job, you have to know, was a successful businessman and he had multiple businesses and subsidiaries in his estate. He had a cattle business, he had a sheep business, an ox business. He had donkeys. All of these, you have to understand, at that time were signs of wealth. He was a big time business guy with his estate, and apparently, according to our text, he had many employees to oversee his estate. Job also had a family with kids and a wife. Times were, in other words, good for Job for many years, maybe decades of his life. However, Scripture reveals in our text that. In the spiritual realm, in the presence of God in the throne room of God, uh, there was an interaction going on between God and our great adversary, Satan, regarding this man, Job, at some point. And Satan basically came to God, betting God that Job would, would end up cursing God if Job's idyllic life and prosperity went the complete other side to hardship and pain. That if, God, if Job's life changed from good to bad, he would ultimately curse God in his life. So what does God do? God allows Satan to oppress Job as a test. As a test of his faith. and As a result in a tragic sequence of events, Job basically loses everything in a short period of time tribe of Sabians come and steal his oxen and donkeys and kill off the servants in that part of the business gone a violent storm a kind of violent lightning storm the fire of God comes and kills off his sheep and the employees who are overseeing those sheep that part of the business was gone then the Chaldeans steal his camels and kill his employees that part of the business is gone and then, worst of all, maybe the most painful thing of all, is that Job's own kids were killed in a violent F5-like tornado that took down their, the house that they were in around them. I mean, we can imagine that for Job and his wife were just probably inconsolable with these sequence of losses all in a short period of time. As if that wasn't enough pain. Job uh, is tested even further as Satan finally in this chapter takes the one thing that Job has good in his life that's left. His health. His health. The text tells us he had loathsome sores from foot to head, head to foot. And that, that word, loathsome sores, if you study the Old Testament, probably some form of leprosy, maybe? Maybe. Over his body. Job and his wife were clearly struggling. He was a man who lost everything. Everything, including his health. Now the responses to this experience for Job are really interesting. Starting with Job's wife. And we see in our text, after all these events, that his finally mean, his wife is speaking up and saying something. Verse 9. Look at verse 9 of our text. It says this. Then his, that is Job's wife, said to him, do you still hold fast your integrity? That is, his staying fast to God, his integrity in his relationship with God, following him by faith. Curse God and die. Wow. That's a She's actually speaking, curse God, which is what Satan wanted Job to do. She was, in this case, like Eve, falling into temptation in the face of darkness and hardship and pain. But she says something else. Not only does she call Job to curse God, which is what Satan wanted, she also commands him to die. You see that in her text? This is basically a call for Job to end his life. It is a version of... Of euthanasia to a suffering man in a dark place. And there it is. In deep emotional and physical pain, in suffering, the pull of euthanasia, ending it all, is intense. We'll get to how Job responds to this whole situation in due time. However, I have to say this is a great, not only historic circumstance, but metaphor for what goes on in our time when people are in dark pain physically or in some terrible place of suffering. The impulse to take life goes way back, guys. Euthanasia is an impulse that's been around a long time, going back as far as Job. And Job, according to some scholars, may be the oldest book in the Bible. In fact, it goes back to other cultures as well. Greece and philosophers in Greece, like Aristotle, once pushed for ending the life of children who were handicapped, born, or simply unwanted because of their physical problems. We call that infanticide, a version of euthanasia. Pre-industrial Japan believed in killing off unwanted children in something they called thinning. Fitting would be like what you do when you're out in the fields and you go through all the seedling of rice plants. You throw away the ones that aren't going to potentially give you what you want. They would kill off their kids. More recently, nations such as the Netherlands have passed laws like in 2002 that embrace physician-assisted deaths in the cases of unbearable suffering Patients. And sadly enough, in September of this year, just a month ago, the American state of California uh, passed legislation to legalize doctor-assisted euthanasia. And here's the question: how are we going to respond to this as Christians? Because it'll slowly take over the nation in time. How will we respond to this? What should we think? the face of the suffering of people who are old, weak, and maybe even handicapped, how should we respond? Well, first we need to go with the truth. Here's the truth. Let's start with the biblical truth. The first important truth comes from God's word. It's this. We've got to start here always when it comes to dealing with life and death in people of any form. When it comes to human value and dignity, Genesis 1.26 says, this, that we all are made in the image of God. Every human being is made in the image of God. In other words, every human being on some level reflects the wonder of God in their creation, that there are echoes of glory within them, whether they're Christians or not. That's what sets us apart from dogs and other animals that we may even love. And this is the key. The image of God is also what gives us value and dignity no matter what our age, no matter what our physical status is relative to our health. All human beings, therefore, because of the image of God, have the right to live because every one of us has the utmost dignity given by God himself. That's first truth. Second truth: As Christians, we believe that death is not the way it's supposed to be. I'll say that again. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. Before the fall, we were called. The intent of God is that we would live forever in our bodies in this world. But with the arrival of sin came the curse. The curse that uh, with sinning uh, we should surely die. And so, as a result, there was a spiritual and even a physical death. That took place, so that as Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And in our time, many times you'll hear people say death is okay, it's natural, it's normal. But here's what we would say as Christians no, it's not. Considering the larger story of what God intended at creation in the beginning, death is not normal, death is not natural, it's not okay. It's not the way it's supposed to be. That's why we have the sixth commandment relative to our actions involving death. The sixth commandment says, and this is the third point, that thou shalt not kill. Stated positively, we are to preserve life. We believe that the preservation of human life is of supreme and high value, and therefore we make every effort to heal to care for medical needs with the knowledge and resources that we have in our time and place. Fourth truth. Fourth truth is this. Our days are numbered by God. Inasmuch as death is not the way it's supposed to be, Scripture also says our lives are like grass in the field, here one day and all the next. Ecclesiastes 3 says this, that there is a time to live and a time to die, God is sovereign over the length of our lives as a result of all of this. In short, the fifth final summary truth is this. God sovereignly gives us life, everyone, to every one of us, and therefore, God has rights over the timing of our death. It is not our place to take life, whether it's our own or another's. It is our place to do what we can to preserve life, Take care of ourselves in our own life. Why would I say this? Well, let's look at the life of Jesus. When Jesus came to the world and started ministering in the world after his installation as the King of Kings, the Priest of Priests, and his baptism, what did Jesus started doing? He started healing people. He started healing people and bringing health as a sign of the glory and the coming of the kingdom in our world. You might remember an example of that, how he not only healed but he even resurrected as the ultimate form of healing. In Mark chapter 5 Jesus is asked by a synagogue ruler Jairus to come and heal his little daughter who was dying at his house. And as Jesus made his way to through the crowds and Crowds following to heal Jairus' daughter, he is stopped on the way by this woman who reaches out and touches his cloak and is immediately healed of what she's going and Jesus, you know, he's just got this funny sense of humor. In the midst of a crowd of people all around him bumping him, he says, who touched me? for years in their life. This delay that Jesus encountered with this woman in the crowd ended up hurting the case for Jairus' daughter, who, by the time Jesus got to Jairus' house, found all the mourners weeping over her death, which had just happened sometime earlier. Jesus goes in and he tells everyone, hey everybody, she's not dead, she's just asleep. People start laughing at can't believe he would say this. What what, what an insensitive thing for him to say. But sure enough, Jesus walked in and said those words to her, Talitha Kum. rise, little girl. And as the girl rose, she was resurrected, experiencing healing in a powerful way. And what's the story here that we learn from this? Jesus has compassion. He has compassion the sick and the dying. He brought healing where he could, as the Son of God with absolute power. This should be true for us. We heal to preserve the dignity and value of a person. We heal when we can because every human being is made the image of God and has dignity. Now, sure as I say these truths that come out of Scripture, someone might say, well, now, wait a minute know that I even buy the scriptural business. I mean, have you ever sat with someone who's been suffering for a long period of time, and all you want for them is to be relieved of their pain and suffering? It seems like euthanasia is a logical way to handle a situation. Well, there are a couple of things I would say about why euthanasia is a bad idea from a natural truth point of view that I want you to consider. And the first natural truth is this. Unlike any time in history, we have medicine that is wildly effective in our world, and it doesn't bring absolute healing all the time, and we can't heal everything, but we can heal and bring comfort to people unlike any time in history. We can even address chronic pain and suffering, and even help people die with dignity and palliative care, and comforting them as they pass away. means and even with extraordinary means can make a difference in people's lives in profound ways. We are blessed with modern medicine. And my question to this is, for those who would promote euthanasia, do you really want to bypass the historic mandate of medicine to do no harm and to do good? For a patient, do you really want to take away their rights? Do you really want medicine to blur the lines and go against his historic intent to preserve life by not using medical means? That puts medical workers in a very powerful, and I dare say a place that they may not want to be. Second, euthanasia, which you may not consider this is, is actually a form of discrimination. It demeans the dignity of life of the weak, the hurting, the old, and even the unwanted, and like infants, for the healthy. Do you really want to move the super-relative line of health, wherever that ends up as a definition of where you get to enjoy medical care or not, do you really want to move that line? After all, At what point does a patient get to decide for themselves rather than somebody else for them? Do you want government deciding this, like California passing laws? You know what's scary is that Nazi Germany actively practiced euthanasia in their history, but they never passed a law to legalize it. Is this that those that endorse euthanasia ultimately pick the pit the sanctity of life against the quality of life? Or, as John Stone Street says, the right to die quickly becomes the responsibility to die in euthanasia cultures. It becomes a true slippery slope for many. We need to think about: Do we really want that? once we stop protecting the weak, the old, the sick, we actually stop protecting ourselves. Who's to say anyone is safe if you are particularly sick? You see, the real issue for most of us who have suffered physically, or watched loved ones suffer physically, is this. And I think this is the core issue. We don't know how to suffer. We don't know how to suffer well in our We don't know how to go through pain and help others go through pain because so much of our life is spent pursuing comfort and ease. part of the issue around euthanasia is that euthanasia assumes that suffering and pain has no meaning, no purpose. That brings us now to the grace piece of our time, of how we respond to suffering and to the problem of death. And guys, that's exactly what Job got at in our text. When he was being confronted by his own wife, we basically tell him, curse God, and yes, Commit euthanasia with yourself. This is what he says in our text today. Verse 10. He said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? And that's the question, is not. Shall we receive all the good and gifts of life from God and not in a broken world experience brokenness in the same way we experience? willfully receive the good gifts of life. See, Job knew that God is good, and he's good all the time, and that God had a good purpose in mind when he allowed Job to go through his trials. Job went through physical suffering, but he also learned to endure in that suffering. He learned to endure with a bunch of friends who were trying to offer advice, but it was terrible advice, bad counsel. He learned to endure when his own doubts would rise up about God, and in the process he learned to know God in a new way. So at the end of Job, he says, my eyes once saw you, or my ears once heard of you, but now my eyes see you. I understand you and know you in a way I didn't know before. Don't we see that sometimes suffering has a purpose? And an endurance is a glorious thing. all kinds of movies where people are enduring pain and hardship and we admire them for fighting for enduring for going to the end don't we honor those who are willing to keep going and keep going and keep going, why? because in our heart of hearts we know that perseverance is right and good in every circumstance even when facing death and that we should take the tack that Jesus took while he faced death. Remember, Jesus was familiar with suffering. He was familiar with death. He interacted with people who were sick and dying. Like I said before, he healed people who were on the edge of death. And yet, he even engaged people who had died, like the Lazarus in John chapter 10, where he shows up with all of his Lazarus family, with Mary and Martha as well as the rest of No, he actually shows and starts crying with them and weeping with them. And don't miss this. Jesus, the Son of God, died up on a cross. And not only did he die, he died with purpose. Purpose ordained by God. His death for our sin ensures our forgiveness that we will celebrate once again as we go to the Lord's Supper. Hebrews 12 said it this way. Jesus endured the cross, scorning its shame for the joy of our salvation. For the joy of God's glory set before him. Think of it this way. When facing death, we scorn its shame by enduring. The gospel is Jesus handled death. Jesus handled his own suffering, his own death. And Jesus even redeem death. Because he's bigger than death. What has God's grace got to do with our dying? And the death of people we love? Well, Jesus promises fundamentally that he redeems all things. He'll make all things new. Even death will have its purpose in the end. We're not privy to what that is. Jesus promises that he'll walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death. He is with us. He is with us, enduring with us in our pain and suffering. Grace shows up in our dying as Christians, and as a result, we want to die well. If you've never heard that idea, that's what we pursue as Christians. In fact, a Puritan they have a bad rap, but boy have they got gold. They used to say that all of life was really a preparation for death and entering into eternity. That really death is our last vocation. This is what Paul meant when he said in Philippians chapter 1. He said this interesting thing when he was facing death in prison. He said Christ will be honored in my body whether in life or in death. And here's the purpose part of that. You ready? He says, he goes on to say that he wants to die and be with the Lord. He'd prefer that much more. However, he remains in the world, in the flesh for the good of others in the church. You see, he's like, of course Christians want to go home and escape the pain. But God allows us to stay here and learn the trust in and the knowing more. Learn to love in the midst as a pastor, I have seen people die with their last breath. I have seen them suffer unto death. And i got to tell you, there's nothing more glorious than the dying person waiting on God's time for their death and all the while giving to others. To me, that is beauty and love beyond anything this world can describe. In fact, I'd say my dad, when he was in his last months, even his last weeks and days, he went out of his way to bless with his words, to give and to encourage to the end. And this is a very different man than the one I had grown up with in a non-Christian setting. It was a glorious and beautiful thing in Christ. What am I saying? Can you dare to believe that dying has a purpose too? That is not purposeful it actually can't be done for the glory of God. If dying has a purpose, and my question today is, what does it mean to love? Love in the midst of death and dying. Well, I'm going to give you five quick things on how we can love as Christians in the midst of a culture that is promoting euthanasia and death. And the first thing is this. The way to love and death in a biblical manner is that we remember our ethics as Christians. Death is not natural. It is the last enemy. So we fight it as much as possible. But we also remember that death is inevitable for all of us. It is irreversible at point. Considering and using the best of our medical knowledge, then it is okay to let people go. To let God have his way when it is very clear that death is moving forward in a loved one's life or our own life. As a result of fighting and letting people go, we can say that as Christians we have a dual ethic. Here's what it is. You ready? We're simultaneously death-resisting. to others as God would have us do unto them, or we would have people do unto them. Love says I will care for you as far as I can, and then it does not say I will end it for you. I might even say that love in our time means speaking up, being a prophetic voice in our culture around this very issue and saying to the world, "Is this really where we want to go? And where does the line end on who decides this? God has the final rights on life, is what well, we believe, and there is purpose in death." Third, when faced with life and death decisions for yourself or your family members, use the best knowledge you have from medicine. Use the best you got, in other words, use wisdom. Usually when we're having to make decisions about life and death, I've seen it a million times with families, you have to take the best knowledge you have from the doctors of what they say, and what we know, what we can't do, and make a decision from there based on biblical principles. That's wisdom. When you have to make tough decisions about life and death, decide whether you're prolonging life or prolonging death. Practically. We are not required to use feeding tubes or ventilators or other extraordinary means if we are prolonging death. But if they can be used for a brief time or some time to prolong life, then it's worth doing. Fourth, if you haven't talked about it with anybody, and I'm sure you're dying to talk to people, oh, no problem. You need to talk with people about your death. I know you came to church today and you're excited about this subject, I'm sure. <laughs> but it's the truth. You need to talk openly with your family members, especially about when you pass away. And I hope for every one of us these are long lives, 80 years beyond, for all of us, a full life, there will be challenges, there will be hard moments, even suffering for all of us, might be even physically. But have you thought about that day? And have you talked about it with them and what your plan is. And I would be remiss if I didn't ask everyone this question. What's going to happen to you after you die? Where will you go next? If you don't know or you are unsure, I exhort you to look to Jesus Christ as the only one in history who not only died a brutal death on the cross, we believe, For the forgiveness of our sins before God, but also was resurrected from the dead. He did that so we could have the hope and the promise of eternal life, not just terminal life. The beauty of the gospel is simply this. about a very sobering subject this morning in death, we have to be clear about what is true in death. And I'll tell you the greatest truth about death there is. Our Lord Jesus died, but death is alive. Our Lord Jesus hung on a cross and bled out. But three days later hope that there is not only purpose into dying, but there's purpose beyond dying to living. Living forever in the presence of God. There is purpose and meaning in all of this, And this is hope. Hope that even in the midst of going through the pain of death, which all of us will face unless Jesus comes back, we can say with Job that Job 19. And this is a guy who's going through serious physical suffering and his wife saying, curse God and die. He says, I know my Redeemer lives. I know he lives. And he says, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What does that mean? He believes in the resurrection. He believes he's going to get a new body. He'll see with his Real eyes, the God of the universe, who saved him from his sin, and even delivered him through death. The wonder of the gospel is this in the face of death, that you and I can say to the world, even a world that wants to promote euthanasia, God makes dead things live. You won't prove.